we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content to you. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. My name is Dr Kate Johnson and today we're joined by Sophie Everbark from Harvard University and Lorelai Wolfe from Harvard College as we record out at Harvard Forest in Massachusetts in the USA. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which our show is based, the Palawa and Pekana people of Lutruwita. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm currently living and recording, as Harvard Forest is located in part of the unceded home territory of the Nipmuc Nation. Welcome to That's What I Call Science. I'm Dr Kate Johnson and today I'm joined by Sophie Everbach who's a PhD student in organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard. And today we're sitting out in Harvard Forest, um, which is a very nice place to be um, and a cool place with lots of research is going on. And I just want to start by asking you, Sophie, to tell us a bit about Harvard Forest. What's Harvard Forest all about? Yeah. Hi, Kate. Um, so Harvard Forest is a... Uh, it's part of a long-term ecological research uh, network that... Uh, I think it's one of the older sites. It's been there's been research here for over 30 years, um, and it's a relatively large forest where people come from kind of all over the country, or even a greater scope, to uh, do all sorts of research uh, in this kind of northeastern deciduous forest. There is a group of um, undergraduate students here at the moment who are all doing their own sort of research projects, um, and you're mentoring one of them. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what your what your students doing? Yeah, um, so these undergraduate students are here through uh, the kind of it's an opportunity called research experience for undergraduates um, that the uh, National Science Foundation helps fund. And um, this yep. summer, my student and I uh, are investigating kind of how uh, resources are distributed below ground uh, in tree roots. Uh, in response to invasive insects. So we're specifically looking at the uh, hemlock tree and the invasive uh, insect, the hemlock woolly adelgid, uh, because it's not entirely clear how these trees are being killed by the adelgid. So we were wondering if there's kind of a, a below ground component on how the trees can maybe no longer get access to all the water or carbohydrates that they need. So we're uh, basically digging up and cutting up a lot of little roots. <laughs> And you've been very patient. It looks like it looks like very um, intense lab work, but such an important question. We don't know much about what goes on underneath underneath plants in the root system. Yeah, roots are just so understudied because obviously they're very hard to see, and to actually um, you know excavate them uh, takes just a lot of work. And there's always the concern of oh no, I've maybe broken this root, and therefore I can no longer use it. So it's you know if someone can create some. Um, below-ground x-ray goggles, that would really, I think the plant world would rejoice quite a bit. Now, Sophie, I do want to know about you and about how you got into science. So would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, um, I actually got into science because uh, of pens. 
So I was in high school and uh, I was taking a biology class and I just purchased a lovely set of those like multicolored uh, like ballpoint pens mm -hmm. or felt, felt tip pens. And um, in my biology class, there were a lot of diagrams and I just got so excited because I was like, oh, I can use my new pens. And, you know, I made these beautiful, colorful diagrams. And I think for me, that was <laughs> that was my entry into science where I was like, oh, wow, science can be really artistic as well. Um, and then I uh, kind of took more science classes and in college I accidentally stumbled into a plant class um, because I tried to uh, get into a uh, disease ecology class but it was it was too full so I was like oh I'll, I'll try this other class this plant ecology class and that kind of changed my entire trajectory uh, because I, I fell in love with just you know going outside and being able to identify plants and looking at a at, at, a, at a system or at a at a forest and be like, wh why, why are these things happening? And why is the tree responding this way? So, uh, you know, the mixture of colorful pens <laughs> and uh, just enjoying being outside and, and kind of the, the real validation you get from when you kind of look at a plant and say, oh, I know what this is. And I, I, I can start to maybe understand why it is doing what it is doing. I love that pins. <laughs> pins is the origin of your your science journey, and yeah, we're very lucky to have you in plant science. So I'm glad that you you stumbled into plant science, and that's often the way it is, right? With the fields we end up in, it's a stumbling process. Oh, for sure. I was going to be a stage manager until I came into <laughs> science. Well, you know, they take a lot of the same uh, skills in terms of organizational power and and attention to detail, but uh, they're you know very different life trajectories, I'd say. Yeah, amazing. And you're right, they do share a lot of skills. So through your stumbling into science, what have you ended up doing for your PhD? Um, so I'm still in, I just finished my second year of my PhD, so I'm still, you know, in the becoming more of an expert phase. Um, but I'm actually mostly interested in uh, looking at some kind of above ground features of trees um, and specifically how trees are responding on the tissue level to mechanical stress such as you get from gravity or uh, from wind. Um, and so if you imagine a tree, you have kind of branches sticking out uh, at various angles. Uh, that's a lot of weight. That trees are constantly fighting gravity, you know, so in response form this wood called reaction wood. And this wood uh, in conifers, so needle trees, kind of is either propped up uh, or in uh, angiosperms, the kind of broadleaf deciduous trees I study, uh, the mechanism, the reaction wood tissue forms kind of above the branch and pulls the branch up. Um, and so I'm really interested in the trade-offs you get with this reaction wood, this modif stress-modified wood, uh, to kind of see, you know, the, the mechanical and the hydraulic, so trees moving water through their bodies trade-off, and the storage component, because trees actually store a lot of sugars uh, in their bodies, and uh, kind of how are these mechanical, hydraulic, and storage functions um, uh, altered in this stress-modified wood. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about how how are these trees, how are plants sensing gravity? How do they do that? How do they form this wood in reaction to gravity? Yeah, so um, our current understanding of it is uh, that they have these basically very uh, kind of starchy globules. <laughs> they're called stadoliths because they're starchy, they're heavy. And so they kind of 
fall, depending on what angle a cell is, to the bottom of the cell, and the tree can then sense the presence of you know, a large number of these, these starch packets. So trees, uh, through kind of various you know, cell membrane sensing, mm-hmm. can kind of tell the direction that these starchy packets are, have fallen. Um, so that's kind of in response to gravity, but there's another sensory mechanism trees use in response to uh, kind of the mechanical stress you get from like wind. Cause you know, wind is not gravity. It's, it's basically air pushing on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that the tree is able to actually sense uh, the distribution of strain. So the wind, or if you're me, pulls on the tree uh, and bending it. Um, Basically, there is a kind of a deformation of the cell wall of each individual cell along the stem. And so that kind of deformation of the cell wall over the whole length of the stem, the tree can sense and then respond to that strain. Wow, that's amazing. So these things are happening at the cellular level, but they result in a reaction that you can see at the plant level just by looking at it. Uh, You can really see these woods on the plant level. If you think about... um, if anyone has, you know, seen trees growing on the sides of mountains or on slopes or on the sides of riverbanks, you know those trees that are kind of totally bent upwards where they they start growing sideways and they're like, uh oh, let's right ourselves. That's what that's the wood I'm talking about. These trees that have fallen over and still somehow manage to grow straight and upright and uh, forage for that light because that's the real reason trees are trying to get this tall is because they want to get that light, mm-hmm. uh, and so this weird stress-modified wood, reaction wood, lets them change their angle and orientation. And honestly, if you think about it, it's kind of like the tree version of muscle. Mm. We are able to, because we're animals, move our bodies and our muscles um, have some give and take on them so we can move. Trees don't have muscle. They have to grow their changes in angle. They have to grow the ways in which they move and that's through this weird wood. Sophie's doing lots of great um, arm movements to demonstrate these things and I wish you all could see it. It's really great. So Sophie, you're talking about seeing these trees where they're all you know bent and warped and I think we've all um, probably seen that whether or not we've noticed it you know on top of mountains they can be so windswept everything sort of swept to one direction is that why you got into this did you did you see these um, windswept or you know bendy trees and think oh that'd be a cool thing to study um, I think I've since I got into you know trees uh, I've really been interested in kind of the question of how do trees respond to the world right like they can't run away <laughs> they're they're kind of stuck in place and so when you look at a tree unless you're really noticing the tree you're like oh yeah that's you know that's a tree shape but trees have such variable architecture and that's because of all sorts of factors such as their species uh, but also a lot of, of their environment and what uh stresses they've been under mm-hmm. and so i think yeah i just i you know walk around forests or walk around uh the city I live in Boston and I look around and you see just trees looking very odd and Mm -hmm. the question of why is is what has powered me (laughs) yeah and the question of why I think is what powers us all as scientists so I want to um sort of change track a bit now because these episodes are also about uh, a US Australia sort of crossover what comes to your mind when you think of what might be really different about the US versus Australia? Um, honestly, I 
think the main way we're different in terms of research is just you have very different uh, field work experience than I think we do here. Um, I'm in a broadleaf deciduous system. That means the trees lose all of their leaves every fall and, you know, come back every mid-spring. So when it's field work season, you have to kind of be out and about and doing that versus, you know, you have a lot of trees that are leafy green year-round, except, you know, when they're droughted. Um, and so I think just, I was lucky enough to be able to study abroad in New Zealand during my undergrad, and I was doing some field work, and I got very concerned. I was like, oh, we're running out of time, you know, it's almost winter, and everyone was like, "That why does that matter? <laughs> I was like, because the, the trees are going to lose their leaves, and then I won't be able to identify them, and everyone was like, no, 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 that's not a problem here. <laughs> so I just think the, uh, the ability, the, the focus on a very specific summer fieldwork season here is um, very different. Yes, absolutely. No, you're right. That is a big difference. And I found that very disorientating coming here and planning out when I was going to do things. You know, my sort of sampling for things that are to do with trees' water status, it can't happen in summer because things are probably under water stress and I want them to be hydrated. So I sample in winter, <laughs> which is, yeah, it's completely different, completely different. What is the most difficult part or, uh, you know, the most interesting thing you've seen while doing fieldwork in Australia? Ooh. So as part of my PhD, I didn't do an awful lot of fieldwork. I helped other people with theirs, um, but mine wasn't super field-based. And I think that the difficulties of field work are quite broad ranging. You know, the broad ones, they're organising teams of people. <laughs> they're getting out to remote places. And I think that's something that's quite unique to Tasmania is we go to a lot of remote places. They're on forestry roads, which can be quite rough. Um, you run into all sorts of different people and obstacles. And um, yeah, so like getting out there and getting back <laughs> is often, often quite difficult. But then the other things, you know, like dealing with the wildlife, like, you know, flies buzzing around your face, much like out here. So in <laughs> some ways very similar, in some ways very different. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Sophie. It was such a pleasure having you, having you on the show. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Stay with us for part two as we talk to Lorelai Wolf, an undergraduate student working out here at the forest. Hello and welcome to That's What I Call Science. My name is Dr Kate Johnson and we've just spoken to Sophie and now we're speaking with the student that she's working with, Lorelai Wolf, who's an undergraduate here out at Harvard Forest for the summer. Um, Lorelai, I'd love to, love to hear more about your project, so he's given us a brief interview, but before we get into the nitty-gritty details of your project, would you tell us about the summer program that you're here as a part of? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for having me. Um, so this program is um, funded by the National Science Foundation, and it's an REU program, which is a research and, like, uh, ecological undergraduate like activity sort of thing sorry I totally botched the acronym but um <laughs> so it's a program specifically meant for undergraduate students and they accept students I'm pretty sure internationally but definitely if students are international but attending United States universities uh, specifically we have a couple of students um in that scenario who are here and 
It's basically an opportunity to get research experience for people interested in science. For me, this is my first real research experience. Um, and it, it just tries to make, I think, science really accessible to people who are interested but might not have a lot of background in it. What a great program. And um, yeah, I'm very impressed that you and about 20 others um, have all given up your summers to, to come out here and do research. So how, how long have you been out here for? Um, this is an 11-week program, and so we've been here now for about, this is our 11th week, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. My project, personally, was about half field work and then half, you know, lab work, and so the first half of the summer was very much out in the field, um, and that was an incredible experience, especially here at Harvard Forest, which is very old-growth um, there's a lot of beautiful, really tall trees that have been growing for about 100 years. Um, and so it's really nice to see like the northeastern forest, especially there are a lot of people from California. Um, one student is an international student and they're from India originally. And so it's like it's bringing a lot of different people to this forest and we get to learn a lot about it, regardless of what our project specifically studies. Uh, it's so great. And it's, it is such a, a lovely spot to be, isn't it? Isn't beautiful beautiful trees yeah so Lorelai would you tell us a little bit about your project I know that it's focused on a, a species that um, is very significant out here could you maybe start with telling us about the the focal study species and then what you're actually trying to find out about it yeah so I'm specifically studying eastern hemlock which is a species of tree it can grow for you know, hundreds of years, it gets really tall and it very much contributes to the microbiome beneath it. And so it has these really dark green needles and the understory beneath it becomes much cooler and it's sort of clear. And so just like a hemlock forest is very beautiful and it contributes so much to the environment by creating this very specific habitat for so many birds, insects, so much wildlife and like specifically I think it makes the understory something like 10 degrees cooler so it's this really specific sort of um, environment that these eastern hemlock trees create um, and specifically I am studying it because there's this non-native species the hemlock woolly adelgid uh, which is originally native to East Asia and because of globalization and climate change, it's been expanding its range rather successfully in the eastern United States. And because the, our eastern hemlock has not co-evolved with this aphid species, uh, it's actually dying uh, when it is infested. And so my study is trying to look at the roots of the hemlock tree and see what's kind of going on with them when the aphid is infesting the the tree so I'm trying to see just truly in any way are the roots responding whether it be in like carbon concentration or literal root length I'm just looking at characteristics and seeing how they differ between non-infested and infested uh, individuals that's yeah that's super interesting such an important thing to study they are such um, wonderful trees and yeah when you stand underneath a stand of hemlocks it's it's so dark, right? It's just yeah. unlike any other sort of stand of trees I've ever really been in. It's it's like a cathedral. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, it's such a cool project. Um, but Lorelei, I want to know a little bit about about you and your interests as well. So, so I'm wondering what what led you to this program, and what what are your interests, your broad interests? What what pathways do you think your career might take you? What what are the sorts of things you like? Yeah. So I'm studying biology and earth and planetary studies at uh, my undergraduate institution, and I. I'm really interested in evolutionary biology, seeing um, how different species interact with one another. And I'm not really sure exactly, you know, what I want to go on to study, what I want to specialize in. But I was really excited about this program and this project because ecology generally, so, th so this REU is like very much ecology focused. And I was really excited to see the different studies um, and the different just like hands-on work I would do as a quote-unquote ecologist and so yeah I think I'm interested in forests because I grew up in forest I grew up in New York and so kind of a similar ecology to here and I think I've never really understood what was going on uh, in the forests. I never really paid attention to it and I never really learned about it and so I was excited to have that opportunity to do so now because you know if nothing else I would leave this program just being able to appreciate the the forest where I grew up a little bit more and then I hope to take what I've done here and continue to contribute to like science in general and and maybe you know management like forest management with what I'm doing I really like ecology because there's a lot of practical applications to it mm -hmm. um, you end up studying the effects of really current issues like climate change or you know when the forest was deforested a hundred years ago like how how is it growing back you're studying a lot of things that people can use to make the lives of humans and wildlife better and so I liked that aspect of it a lot. So when you say um, you grew up in New York I'm just thinking uh, a lot of people back home would be thinking the city but Okay, <laughs> no. So New York is quite a big state, yeah. So, yeah. so can you tell us a little bit about about where you grew up and about the place in New York that you're from? Sure. So I am from the suburbs of New York, which are basically they're outside the city, such that like you can take a train into the city. But I was surrounded by you know woods and forest. Actually, my my like original childhood home, I could walk in the backyard and I would walk about five minutes and then be on these nature trails and like hikes. And so I was always really connected and I've always had dogs growing up. So it was, there was always incentive to just start walking and, you know, go on a little hike. And I was actually inspired, I think, to, to start studying science because my sister-in-law, um, who came into my life when I was very young I was seven she studies biology and I was just so inspired I didn't know anyone else who studied biology you know she was so cool and so we would go on hikes together and she would point out trees and and you know say this is that species and she would see a bug and she would say this is that species and I wanted to know how she did it so badly and so <laughs> that's that's like my original inspiration <laughs> That's so lovely. And having those having those early role models is, you know, so important and having visibility of people in science who were who are like us mm -hmm. and I'm sure you're going to be that for a lot of people. I mean, if science is of course what you <laughs> intend and continue continue in, but yeah, because our, our show is a lot about um 
making sure that we have diverse representation. And it can be hard um, in scientific fields sometimes, especially yeah. as a woman or someone from an underrepresented group when there mm. aren't people who look like you and <laughs> think like you. And yeah, yeah. So I'm glad that you had that early, that early experience. What do you think is the next step for you, Lorelei? After this, I'm sorry, that's a <laughs> bit of a rough question, but what, what are the things that you're kind of weighing up? Yeah, well, <laughs> I have two more years of undergrad to finish, and I want, so so my university, and I think a lot of universities encourage or, or have, you know, the structure of doing an, an honors thesis or a senior thesis, and so you sort of pair yourself with a lab that, you know, you're interested in, you're passionate in, you work there, and then you develop your own question, and that question can be something completely independent, or it can be something that is adjacent to what a current grad student is working on in that lab, and you end up working on that, and uh, it's it's sort of like a mini master's or a mini PhD in a year and a half, or sometimes as little as one year and, and one summer, or something like that, and then you graduate with that thesis in that lab, you know, with that experience, and so that's something I really want to do, and Again, I'm not really sure specifically where I want to be for that, but I think this project has definitely opened some pathways for me, um, which is really exciting, just in terms of like the connections I've made with my mentor and, and with other research that's being done uh, similar uh, to what I'm doing right now. And so then after graduation, I'm at this point, I think I do want to pursue a PhD, but I want to take a gap year or two. Part of, of what this program has done, which is really incredible, is sort of educate all of us on the possibilities after graduation and how we can keep in touch with the science world in just, you know, a lot of different ways. And so one of the ways that I've really been interested in is as a lab or field tech for a different lab um, and maybe applying myself and, and, you know, extending my network to different universities in different parts of the United States or potentially the world, you know, seeing where I can do some work and get paid to do it for maybe a year or so and then have that experience to really inform my choice as to like what type of PhD program I want to do. Um, I'm also really interested in working in museums and doing science communication. I love uh, natural history museums and have some experience volunteering at them and would really love to like work on the exhibits and I, I love the aspect that working in a museum lets you just constantly be learning about all these different fields of science all the time and you're really not pigeonholing yourself into one very very specific area where you no longer get the overlap of application and all of that so those those are the things that I'm juggling right now. <laughs> it sounds like you've got some great ideas and I do I do hope you continue in science in some capacity and you're a great communicator so I think that working in a museum would also be very beneficial to the people who came across you and yeah thanks so much for joining us Lorelai it's been really great to hear about the program you're part of and the the structure of schooling in the U.S. Um, it's really interesting to hear so thank you thank you <laughs> thank you for listening to that's what I call science we love bringing you science related content and hope you enjoyed the show my name's Kate Johnson and I'd like to once again thank today's guests Sophie Everbach and Lorelai Wolf. If you liked this episode, you can get in touch with us and follow us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or by visiting our website at thatscience.org.